0: My experience is uh, very positive. I think that uh, weightlessness is, is, is fine. It requires adaptations. And uh, the training that I've got at Star City and at, at Baikonur really helped me with the adaptation. Charles Simony was not the first space tourist. He wasn't even the first Hungarian in space. But he's one of the few humans ever to go into space twice. First, in April 2007, aboard the Soyuz TMA-10, and a second time in March 2009, aboard the Soyuz TMA-14. Both times as a tourist. Imagine having the time and money to not only pay to go to space once, but twice. I'm very proud that uh, my money is supporting an enterprise as valuable as, as the uh, space flight Now, imagine you're Simony, and you're looking down from the International Space Station at that big blue marble below. You glance over at one of the working astronauts plugging away at a log or report or something on a laptop. And you notice the word processor they're using, and you say, I made that happen. That's probably not what Simony said, but he could have. Because Charles Simony is not only a two-time space tourist... He also created the modern word processor twice, and the second one stuck. Now, wait, wait, wait. Some of you have listened to our episode on the mother of all demos. So you know that in 1968, during that demo, Douglas Engelbart showed off a word processor. So I'm putting in an entity called a statement, and that's full of other entities called words. And if I make some mistakes, I can back up a little bit. So I have a a statement with some entities' words, and I can do some operations on these. I can copy a word, say that word like copy after itself. I mean, that's 1968. How is that not the first word processor? Well, first of all, the word processor as such never really got invented. It just slowly developed out of things like typewriters and slowly merged into electronic appliances and eventually became software. So Engelbart's word processor wasn't the first. It was just the first software demo, at least the first software demo anybody can remember. It was pretty bare bones, too. And it never became a product. Remember, the mother of all demos ended up being just a demo. To know who made the modern word processor, to understand the origin of the one you and I would recognize, the one that can do bold, italic, and underline, we need to follow the journey of future space tourist Charles Simony. Simony left Hungary in 1965 at age 17 on a short-term visa. He's in wild violation of that term because he didn't go back. He started working in Denmark in 1966 on mini computers and then made it to the U.S. in 1968 to the University of California at Berkeley where he studied under computer scientist Butler Lampson. Simony got his Bachelor's of Science in Engineering, Mathematics, and Statistics from Cal in 1972. And by then, Professor Lamson had taken a job at Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, a.k.a. Xerox Park. So, when Simony graduated... Lampson brought Simony over to Xerox Park, where they worked on developing the Xerox Alto. Now, we've talked about the Alto in other episodes. The Alto was the embodiment of the ideas from Douglas Engelbart's mother of all demos and the inspiration for the future Mac and Windows PC. So, how did we get from Engelbart's admittedly kind of halting but impressive basic word processing to the modern day dominance of Microsoft Word? And why is Charles Simony the link between them? Let's help you know a little more about word processors. Almost every one of you listening to this used a word processor today. Most likely it was Microsoft Word. It could have been Google Docs though, or Notepad, or TextPad, or one of literally thousands of other pieces of software that let you compose text. Word processors are background to computing these days. We don't even think of them anymore, but many of you recall that knowing how to use a word processor was once a rare enough skill you'd highlight it on your resume. And some of you remember when a word processor was a machine itself, not a piece of software. And before that, it was just typewriters. We could do a whole episode on typewriters. Maybe someday we will. But let's kind of fast forward through the 1714 patent for Henry Mills writing machine, William Austin Burt's typographer and Christopher Latham Scholl's typewriter, or a Scientific American called it at the time, the literary piano. Those machines just put letters on paper. So what would you call the first word processor? Something that could erase characters without you having to pull out the whiteout? Typewriters started doing that in the 1930s. A German IBM typewriter salesperson named Ulrich Steinhilper is often credited with popularizing the term. In German, it was "Textverarbeitung." in the 1950s. That was translated as word processing. Uh, But I don't know, maybe because it was in German most of the time, the phrase didn't really catch on right away. Perhaps a word processor is the ability to store characters before they're committed to paper. IBM's MTST, for Magnetic Tape Selectric Typewriter, did that in 1964. You could store your typing for later reuse. Or maybe it was avoiding the need to use paper at all, something Douglas Engelbart showed off in his Mother of All Demos. But let's keep following IBM for the moment, because IBM let you store words on something you could share and edit. Unlike the MTST, IBM in 1969 moved from magnetic tape to magnetic cards, mag cards you could pull in and out, and in 1971 introduced the floppy disk. That is a pivotal moment for word processing. That same year, 1971, the New York Times identified word processing as a business buzzword. So it finally made it into the natural parlance. It was a more specific version of data processing. That's how they defined it. That was another business buzzword for using computers to run your business. And that floppy disk encouraged other companies to get into the game. VIDEK is often considered one of the first word processing desktop systems. It took advantage of the floppy disk in 1973, and for $12,000, much less than a mainframe, still a lot of money, but much less than a mainframe, you could write, edit, and when ready, print documents, and even share the floppies with others. Linolex Systems, founded in 1970, also adopted the floppy, after Videck to make standalone word processing systems of their own. In 1975, One year before the introduction of the Apple computer, Linolex sold 3 million word processing units. Now, most of these systems had limited screens. I remember in college, I had a a version of that. just had one line, an LCD. But in 1978... Lexitron was the first to include a full-size CRT monitor and the new smaller five and 5.25-inch floppy disks in its word processor system. But if you're talking about word processors, before we even get to PCs, Wang Laboratories became synonymous with word processors for a time, with text displayed on a CRT and almost all the modern functions of a word processor software in its unit. But none of those are what we're looking for. They're all electronic machines, single-purpose machines, doing what we can do with an app today. Something that looks on the screen, like what you're going to print on the paper, and is on a system that does other things besides word processing, is what we're looking for. We're looking for Bravo. This one looks interesting. Let's uh, take a look at this. I'm going to need a couple of copies of this. Push a button, and the words and images you see on the screen... Appear on paper. Oh, thank you, thank you, Fred. Bravo was the first "What you see is what you get" editing system on a multi-purpose computer, the Xerox Alto, on a desktop computer, not a mainframe. It was created at Xerox Park by Butler Lampson and future space tourist Charles Simony and colleagues in 1974. It used the mouse—remember that thing Engelbart showed off in the Mother of All Demos?—to mark locations of text. So you could mark the beginning of a phrase, end of a phrase, and then the user would type in commands to affect that text. Bravo was what you would call a modal editor, meaning it had more than one mode. In insert mode, you would enter the text, press escape, and it was inserted into the selected area of your document. In command mode, you told the program what to do. So you'd click twice to select text, once at the beginning, once at the end, and you could not drag the cursor while holding the mouse down like you do now, so that was your only way of selecting text. And then once you'd marked a sentence with the mouse, you could enter a command, like make it bold, for instance. Side note on Bravo, one quirk of this was in early versions, the command edit was accidentally interpreted as four one-letter commands. E for everything, D for delete, I for input, and T for the letter T. Thus, it would take everything, delete it, And in its place, put T, replacing all your text with the letter T if you accidentally wrote edit. You could only undo the most recent command on Bravo, so once you did this, you could undo the insertion of all the Ts, but not the deletion of all your selected text. Anyway, they did fix that, and Bravo was impressive. It wasn't fully WYSIWYG. Some people argue it wasn't the first WYSIWYG because of that. It was what you see is what you get in so much as the format looked the same on the screen as the paper. So if it was justified on the screen, it would be justified on the paper. Fonts, spacing would all be the same. It did not look exactly like it would on the page because the Alto monitors displayed 72 pixels per inch and Xerox Park's laser printers gave you 300 pixels per inch. Now, there was a special display mode that would attempt to show the text as it would appear on the page, kind of emulate it, but it wasn't perfect. There were occasional variances. Bravo X followed in 1979. That one was modeless, so you didn't have to switch between command and insert mode. And then Gypsy followed that with a truly modeless word processor. That meant when you typed a character, it always typed that character in the document, the way we do now. There was no command mode, no accidentally replacing all your text with T's. You could also hold down the mouse button and drag the cursor across text to select it. No need to click at the beginning and the end anymore. You could also double click on a word to select it. And once you had your text selected, you could then press the control key and B to bold, control key I, to italicize, U, to underline. Gypsy also introduced the ability to cut, copy, and paste text. Other commands were still available, but they put them in a clickable menu, something we're very familiar with today. Today, word processing specialists and equipment often can produce four times as much work. Print over 200 perfect lines a minute, memorize thousands of paragraphs, and retrieve them at a moment's notice. Align those pesky decimal points. Reset margins and format in an instant. Correct whole pages with a touch of a button. And wonder of wonders, word processors will never have to erase again. Wow. Sounds great. While the Alto never reached mainstream commercial success, word processing did begin to take off. In December 1976, filmmaker Michael Schreyer began selling electric pencil for the Altair, considered the first word processor for personal computers. It was 14 lines of 64 characters on a monochrome monitor, usually the size of a small black-and-white TV. Starting in 1977, science fiction author Jerry Pornell used Electric Pencil to edit his novels, so he's generally credited with being the first published sci-fi author to use a word processor on his published works. In 1978, the founder of MicroPro International, Seymour Rubenstein, took four months and wrote his own word processor called WordStar for owners of computers running CPM. Now, WordStar was eventually rewritten for DOS and Windows and competed with WordPerfect for the word processor market. But the two companies that would make word processing mainstream were Microsoft and Apple, and they would need each other to do it. Apple's first attempt at a modeless, what-you-see-is-what-you-get word processor was LisaWrite for the unfortunately failed Lisa computer. You would tear off stationery to start a document and then edit it from there. The Lisa did not succeed, so many more people are familiar with MacWrite. It shipped on every Mac from launch in 1984 to 1986. And then Apple spun off MacWrite into a new company called Claris in 1987, which continued to publish versions of MacWrite until they discontinued it in 1998. But you don't use MacWrite today. You probably use Microsoft Word, a product of computer scientist and future space tourist Charles Simonyi. In 1981, Simony e. was still working on research at Xerox PARC with luminaries like Robert Metcalf. If you ever listened to our Ethernet episode, you know he's credited with inventing Ethernet. Well, after Bravo, Simony e. had moved on to other projects. He still gave input and tech support to projects like Gypsy, but he was devoting more time to his idea of meta programming, which is what he wrote his doctoral dissertation on for Stanford in 1977. So Metcalf saying, you're a guy with big ideas, I know this other guy with big ideas, suggested Simony visit Bill Gates at Microsoft. Gates had seen the Alto and was busy trying to incorporate its ideas into Microsoft's products, like Windows. And Gates wanted to start an applications group. He asked Simony to start the applications group at Microsoft and make his first project, a what-you-see-is-what-you-get word processor. Not one that would languish like the one at Xerox Park, but one that everyone would use. Simony took the job and brought with him a Xerox Park intern named Richard Brody as the primary software engineer. Simony made some interesting choices with Word and also with Excel, which his group also developed. They ran on a sort of virtual machine that made them easy to port between platforms. And Word supported high-resolution displays and laser printers, even when most users didn't have either. It didn't need to do that, but he insisted on building it in. Word was first released as Microsoft Multitool Word on October 25th, 1983 for Xenix Systems. That was a Unix variant licensed from AT&T by Microsoft, and of course followed by a version for Microsoft DOS. Free copies of Word were bundled into PC World magazine in its November 1983 issue, making Word the first application distributed in a magazine on disk rather than printed in code in the pages. Microsoft demonstrated Word for Windows that year, but Word for Windows wouldn't come for a long time. Its main market was DOS. Unlike most DOS programs, though, Word was designed to be used with a mouse. So high-res displays, laser printers, mouse use, very ahead of its time. It had an undo function and the ability to display bold, italicized, and underlined text on screen instead of just showing the markup. But its interface was still too different from WordStar. That was the one everybody knew. Maybe they'd go to WordPerfect. More of them were... But this Word, Microsoft Word, it was a little too weird. It was suffering a little bit from the same thing that Engelbart's demo in 1968 had. Looks great, not sure how practical it is. So Simon team kept improving it. By 1985, Word had unlimited undos, the fastest cut and paste in the business. And it still had that largely unused support for high-resolution displays and laser printers. And that easy-to-port feature. So, it was a no-brainer to bring Word to the brand new Macintosh that had launched the year before, once it had been out long enough to prove it was not another Lisa. Word for Mac OS had all the capabilities of a solid DOS word processor with all the true what you see is what you get of a Mac right. It was the best of both worlds, and it filled a gap for the Mac user that Apple had barely been able to fill. For at least Four years, Word for Mac OS outsold Word for DOS. That let Apple stop spending resources on MacWrite, and it gave Microsoft a revenue stream outside DOS. Finally, the first version of Word for Windows was released in 1989, and by 1990, Microsoft was the market leader for word processors. Now, word processors after the 1990s are mostly the same, Uh, with attempts to make what they do easier. But most people type, delete, revise, copy-paste, bold, underline, etc. The biggest innovation in word processing since then has not been so much the manipulation of text as the number of people who could work on one document at the same time. We'll get to that in a separate episode on collaborative editing. And how about Charles Simony? Well, He stayed at Microsoft, introducing things like object-oriented programming, which he had learned at Xerox, and what's called the Hungarian Notation Convention for Variables, which he introduced in his doctoral thesis and became de rigueur at Microsoft. But he finally left Microsoft in 2002 to form Intentional Software. Intentional Software marketed Intentional Programming concepts, which included a what-you-see-is-what-you-get component for programming. While there, he booked a couple of tickets and went to space twice. Microsoft bought Intentional Software on April 18th, 2017, and Simony went back to Microsoft. He is, and has been since 2017, a Microsoft Technical Fellow. So there you go. From typewriters to Engelbart's demo... To Simony's work on Bravo and Microsoft Word. Without them, I'm not able to write the words I'm saying to you right now. In other words, I hope you know a little more about word processors. Know a Little More is researched, written, and hosted by me, Tom Merritt. Editing and production provided by Anthony Lamos in conjunction with Will Saddleberg and Dog and Pony Show Audio. It's issued under a Creative Commons Share Attribution 4.0 international license. Dog and Pony Show Audio.